I started off in investment management. We went and there were a hundred of us and there were 16 women and they called it the year of the woman. I knew full well that I wasn't earning very much after I paid day nannies, but I just took the view that it was better to keep my foot in than to disappear. Bit of an investment, human capital investment in yourself, which I don't think gets emphasized nearly enough. Sarah, thank you for joining us. I know you personally from holidaying in the Isle of Wight and I grew up with your children, Freddie and Kagi. I'm so excited to have you join us because of your experience and background supporting women in the workplace. You have an academic background in gender and organisational culture and have written a book called Women's Work, Men's Cultures. You're a consultant and help organisations identify barriers to women's progress. We'd love to start by asking you about your journey into parenthood with two children who are now in their 30s. I think you were in financial journalism at the time, 30 years ago. Did you take maternity leave? Um, Gosh, it was probably even longer ago than that, Joy. No, I didn't take maternity leave as such then because I was already freelance. So I had been on a number of newspapers on the staff. And then I think when I was pregnant with Freddie, I might have left one paper and gone to another. I knew I wanted to do a three-day week. And I, in those days, it was almost unheard of in journalism to get anybody to employ you part-time. But I found I was offered a job at something called Today, which was run by quite a far-sighted editor called David Montgomery, who went on to uh, edit The Independent. And he gave me a three-day week, but I was very much on a freelance basis, so I was rather at the mercy. But it was very, very flexible, I left to have Freddie and I wasn't sure what I was going to do going back. It wasn't until about five months in of being at home with Freddie, my editor rang me. I was a financial journalist. My editor rang and said, Sarah, we're desperately short-staffed over the Christmas holidays. Is there any way you can come back for a bit? So I, I suddenly thought, ping, yes. I went back and then realised... <laughs> what I was missing at home. But it was, I kind of thought I want, I was going to be at home and then realised it wasn't for me. And, and, and that, that sort of Christmas job, as it were, which was a couple of weeks, and I managed to get um, a kind of a part-time nanny that I'd had coming in the whole time. Uh, I realised, and she said, will you come back? And I said, I'll come back three days a week. Is that okay? And she said, that's fine. That's quite interesting. So were you thinking I'm going to be a full-time mum? And then it was actually this call that, and then you you starting work over the Christmas break that made you realise, oh, I love it. I want my independence back. I'd love to think it was all thought out, Joy, but I'm not sure it was. <laughs> it was more kind of like, I'm not sure what's happening here. Uh, having a baby, uh, I, I, I didn't know, actually. I thought I might just go freelance, which I did later. But um, that was more my thinking. I didn't actually know whether it'd be possible to do three days a week. And did you find that it was? It was on this paper. Yeah. Yeah. And and other journalists used to say to me, oh, you're so lucky because we've had to come back five days a week. (laughs) Because nowadays I feel like it's quite normal to have a sort of three day a week option. Perfectly normal. Particularly in professional services. But I imagine sort of 30 plus years ago, it might not have been. It wasn't at all. And in fact, even in kind of like, if you were, if you were in the professional services, and you asked to have, well, it was considered kind of like career suicide to ask, 
so you you wouldn't necessarily have asked and then we sort of you know when I started studying stuff I started looking at what was happening in America and over there it was called the mommy track m-o-m-m-y and it was basically you want to step down and do four days a week you're sidelined and you will go into the mummy track forget any promotions but actually when I went freelance which was after I'd had Kagi I went back to work very soon after her like two months which was probably a bit early wow that is very early it is very early but for all sorts of reasons I did but I was still only doing the three days a week sometimes four but mostly three and what were your childcare arrangements well, I sometimes had I had to have a four-day-a-week nanny because it was very difficult to get a three-day-a-week one, but I could get a four-day-a-week one. So I had a, a day nannies when they were little at that time. Um, and I, you know, I knew full well sometimes that I wasn't earning very much after I paid them, but I just took the view that it was better to keep my foot in than to disappear. So I just took that view. Yeah, a bit of an investment into your career. Bit of an investment, yeah, kind of like human capital investment in yourself, which I don't think gets emphasised nearly enough. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter if you step to one side and don't, you know, if you're in that kind of work and don't get promoted straight away. But it's very, very difficult to come out altogether and then go back. Yeah, so it's actually much better in those periods when you've got young children before they go to school just to keep that foot in the door, even if it is just one or two or three days a week. Keep a foot in the door, absolutely. Or even if you want to. I mean, a lot of my friends at the time tried to go back and then found five days a week was all a bit too much. But a lot of them then went and retrained to something that they thought was a bit more family friendly, as we used to call it like being, you know, a therapist or a teacher, having holidays, uh, starting out, even starting their own businesses, which is now very common, something that they could be a bit more flexible. And presumably at that time, men weren't doing the same thing. So they weren't having to adjust their career paths or go and do something different or retrain, etc. because they were having a family. Oh my God, no, 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 no thought of it at all. Absolutely no thought of it at all. In fact, I'll tell you one story which sort of tells it's, well, it, it tells, it's a quite illustrative of the of the time. And this was actually into, after I'd left, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd studied a bit and I'm moving on a bit, but it was a story when I was doing a, a kind of mix of consultancy and research in British Airways. It's such a long time ago. It doesn't matter if I say the name of the company. And we were in a meeting and I was just sort of sitting there listening and stuff. And it was quite gung-ho. It was that kind of environment. There was always something to kind of firefight. And somebody said in a very quiet voice, look, I'm sorry about David, but, you know, he's got issues at home. He might not be able to make the later meeting. And it was kind of considered like, oh, shock, horror, how absolutely terrible. But he's an exception. And it was very much, and I really took that in and I thought, hmm, yeah. Not very, not very family friendly. Was that part of the driver for then? Because I think you then went and studied. Is that right? Yeah. What happened was that on the paper I was on, which was today, I was offered a job as deputy city editor. But I knew what the hours were, which was it tended to be not too early a start, but quite a late evening. So you, you miss bedtime. That's just the way that it is. It was a daily paper. And I thought, how much do I really want to do that? I wasn't 100% sure it was a job that I really wanted for life. And I 
enjoyed it, but I didn't, I decided I didn't want to do it. So I decided to go back and study and sort of go back home and study. And what did you study? I studied, well, I, I'd done law at university, but I'd always enjoyed looking at women's issues. And I'd done a bit of that in the legal sense. So I wangled my way on to a master's in sociology, even though I hadn't done sociology. <laughs> but I actually went to meet a woman who became my tutor, Professor Sylvia Warby. And she was so encouraging of women going back to university that she said, you've done a bit of sociology in that, that option you did in year three or whatever. You know, I think you might stand a chance of getting in. So I did. And I went to the London, back, back to the London School of Economics and I did a master's in sociology, which I loved. Amazing. And presumably you had a bit of financial backing in order to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, the thing was that it was kind of like an agreement between my husband and myself that this was what I was going to do. And he was in a fortunate position at that time of being able to earn quite a bit of money. So I just, yeah, I took the hit. As, it, as they say, because again, I felt that um, it was investing in myself in some way. How did you find studying with, with young children? It must be a, a challenge in a different way from having a full-time job. Uh, it was being in the house that was the challenge. I'm sure. But I didn't. What I used to do is I used to go, I'd had, because it was a, a full-time course, I had to go in for my lectures and I'd go and study in the library. So at that time, they'd both started school, I think. Maybe Kagi hadn't. But again, I'd have help. I'd had a, I started to move from the kind of proper nanny to more like uh, home help, uh, what do you call mother's help? Sort of a bit more than an au pair, but a bit less than a nanny so that they'd do all sorts of things in the house. And actually, uh, I have to say that my husband was very good with the children. He was quite a hands-on father. So he would come home, for instance, when I was a journalist, he would come home and bath them and put them to bed very often, which was quite, again, quite unusual at the time. So, yeah, what was he, what was he doing? He was in the city. So actually that was quite different for him to be back by six. And he was a salesman. Yeah. Well, once the markets had closed, you know, they had a decision, go out, go out and drink with the boys or go home. (laughs) He made the right choice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, not always but yeah (laughs) yeah so so that worked out okay and then the idea was that I did the masters and then I went back to journalism when they were a little bit older that was the plan and did that happen no it didn't happen it didn't happen because I really enjoyed what I'd done which had been sociology of employment and sociology of women and I started to kind of make some connections and I'd done a dissertation on looking at the way organisational cultures acted uh, to kind of close down areas of work for women. And so it was a theoretical dissertation. And my tutor, Sylvia, said, why why don't you take this on and apply for a PhD and see if you can do the research to test the hypothesis of whether that is true or not. So I spent the next year basically looking around to see whether I would go back to working. And I applied for a couple of jobs what I didn't get. Oh, and then I just thought, do you know what? I think I might just apply for this PhD. I did some teaching in that year. In I did a local access course teaching, which is where it was for women over the age of 25 who hadn't had a formal education, but they wanted to go to university. 
So there are special courses that you could do as an access course. And I taught there and I taught at Roehampton University on a women education course, women in education and work. So, and then I applied to do this PhD. And in the end, my tutor went to Bristol. So I went with her. I went to Bristol. I see. And the focus of of the PhD was barriers to women in the workplace. It was very, very specifically looking at the ways different organisational cultures impact women managers whether they marge whether they exclude them really on or in or inhibit their process and was that UK focused yes yeah totally UK and what was the kind of broad findings well what I had to do is I had to look at all the kind of management literature to break down what we mean by organizational culture because a lot of people talk about it, but they might just say something like, oh, it's what we do around here, or it's the way things work or stuff. But I had to go and research it. So in sort of academic terms, it's called operationalized. I had to break it down to things that I could either ask about, look at, see, listen. I, you know, I had to make it a material thing, a ta- something tangible. It's quite difficult to make culture tangible. Uh, well... <laughs> You can read my book. Uh, it is, but we sort of do it all the time. And so the way that I did it was that I, 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 it was quite a big part of the work, actually kind of breaking it down into what it means is really you're breaking it down into small pieces that you can actually research. Because actually, otherwise, how do you research it? Yes. Do you see what I mean? So breaking it down into items yeah okay. yeah so I, I, what I did was I took what some of the big management writers had done but they never mentioned gender but I wanted to look at the way in which they were gendered so then I took the more kind of women's studies literature which was looking at the ways in which organizations were gendered and had a different impact on men and women and I had to then kind of like take some of the issues and then put them together so that I had a breakdown of what gendered organisational culture research would look like. And in terms of the output of that, do you advise businesses on that topic now, i.e. how to help and support women who perhaps don't fit into the culture that has been so dominated by men for such a long time? Yeah, but I don't do it that way around. I do it how does the organisation change the culture so that everybody can flourish in it? Not my foot. I mean, and I haven't, I don't do the big projects that I used to do now at all, but my approach was very much the organisation and not individual women. I mean, a lot of people did the other way around, like women in leadership courses. And I ended up doing quite a bit of mentoring just as kind of, because I'd be, if I was in an organisation, I tended to be there for quite a while. So I might do some sort of on the way, but it wasn't my focus because my approach wasn't that women needed fixing. It was that the organisations needed fixing. Quite right. And that presumably requires quite a bit of upheaval, perhaps from an organisational perspective, just because it's been so ingrained for so long. Yeah, that it, it, it does. It's a male world. Yeah, it does. And there was kind of like an argument that for a long time, if enough women come in, it will change kind of like by osmosis. Mm. And um, certain people would have said, say, 30% women in senior management would be enough to change the culture. Now, some people 
then but then we realize that actually in the first place you've got to attract the women in there to get to that sort of 30 percent. and now of course you know people are much more aware of it and we have you know we had the threat of quotas for women on boards and just the threat of quotas made the numbers go up miraculously in a few years. Have you seen a change? Oh my goodness, yes. In the culture that an organisation has? See, the way that I look at culture is it's not obviously not static, it's dynamic, and it's basically created all the time in our interactions with people. So another area in which I'm probably a little bit different from a lot of consultants is that my background is sociology. So my PhD was in the sociology department. And what happens outside an organization is taken in to an organization. And you can't look at an organization without looking at what's going on outside. It's almost, it's just fruitless. So you say, well, we used to say to organizations, you know, this was sort of 20 years ago, look, you can either be a leader and go ahead of what's going on in society, or you can be a laggard and be behind and have to be dragged, screaming and kicking. But the other area that is important to grasp, I think, in looking at cultures is that they're imbued with power. And it's another thing that, um, because when I started out, Joy, my we called it equal opportunities. It was equality, equal opportunities. And for all sorts of good reasons, that shifted and we got the, the American diversity. But the problem with some of the terms and the terminology like diversity, is there's no concept of power in it. And if it was just a question of everybody being different, it wouldn't really be an issue because we're all different. But what you've got is you've got an imbalance of power relations in society between men and women, which is narrowing, you know, as we go on, as we progress. And that was echoed and reinforced in organisations. So... There's quite a lot of, I call, the subtitle of my book is Overcoming the Resistance, because there's a huge resistance, one, to changing any culture. People don't like having their routines or their thoughts or their beliefs disrupted. And there's particular resistance when people might feel a bit threatened by a change. And that's the kind of area that I focus on in you know, I I have focused on in doing workshops and things, is getting these quite difficult topics out in the open and talked about. Um, Because if they're not, they kind of rumble along under the surface, which is why people keep saying, oh, nothing much is changing. You know, we know these things, but nothing much is changing. Do you look at, Sarah, do you look at this from an incentive perspective, speaking to organisations about, you know, not just in terms of being at the forefront of change and making change that you know is coming down the track one way or another, but also the benefit to companies of having, you know, teams with more women on or with people with different backgrounds on from a decision making perspective and that sort of thing. You know, there actually are great benefits to them if they can if they can see that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right from the word go, even back in the sort of eighties, certainly in the nineties when I started doing this, the case, the business case, was absolutely paramount for going into an organization you know then if you'd walked in and just said oh you ought to be nicer to women this is really unfair you'd have been the door would have been shut in your face you know you had to actually 
start showing. So one of the first pieces of research I did with a company that I was very involved with called Schneider Ross, which was a small consultancy, is that we did something called the business of diversity, spelling out what the business benefits were. And you needed to do that because just saying be nice wasn't enough. So it was, you know, whether it was attracting talent uh, was a big, big thing. Because obviously women had started to do, young women were doing really well at university. People were now thinking we've got to get the best people. And suddenly there are a lot of women coming out of university. We might want them. Oh dear, we can't attract them. We don't look right. And then the second bit of it is we want to keep them, the retention. How do we keep them? Because we don't want to train women and then lose them. So yes, those those benefits. And then again, I think the things on, I would call like management style, you know, decision making, how women may lead a bit differently, etc., has been a much more difficult area to get people to accept. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the change um, over the last few years. Um, Joy and I have talked about this a few times before, whereas maybe a generation or two back, there was more of a focus of women in a workplace, say only one woman surrounded all by men. They maybe had to present more masculine and be more masculine in their style. Yeah. And has that changed now where we're embracing the difference a bit more, allowing people to you know, be themselves a bit more, whatever that happens to be. Do you think that's something that you've seen a change? In some in some situations, I think it's quite interesting to look at the different... Uh, I think there are two things, really. One, definitely in the beginning, women felt they had to model themselves on what the successful men looked like. And I think I'm seeing or have seen young men come in in one way, but after five years suddenly being quite like the senior leaders so it happens to them as well and it's kind of like a it can happen in a process because what I found in my research was that uh, I asked this was one of the questions that I asked is do you think men and women manage differently and many more women said yes than men for a start but the higher up the organization I went so at the senior senior level there was less difference now, that's either because the women had shown the same, you know, qualities as the men, or in some situations, I do think this, in some situations, the business determines the style. Because in about 2000, we started to get quite a lot of work coming across from the States about how men, you know, we were coming into a service-led economy as opposed to a manufacturing one. So it was very service-orientated. And for that, you needed different skills. And this kind of command and control skill isn't terribly good when you're trying to sort of sell things and particularly services. But the way that it was packaged up was that men were sent on courses on emotional intelligence and rewarded for it, whereas women were just meant to have it. So it's quite, it's quite a comp. It's an, I, I, lo- I love the subjects. It's really interesting because I'm not going to deny that there are differences between men and women because there are, you know, whether they're nature, nurture doesn't really matter. But I think there are definitely huge strengths in some of women's approach that still to this day get discarded and ignored. I will mention one managing the pandemic, but we won't go there. <laughs> Interestingly, from a personal perspective, I did one of those uh, emotional intelligence 
tests recently for a course that I'm on and the big hole in my uh skill set apparently is my assertiveness and being uh uh good at giving criticism and those sorts of things that's where I'm really lacking and for me that seems like quite a male trait I think that what it's presenting it is. is that I'm quite female in a, a sort of very nurturing way with my team rather than being you know yeah forthright and assertive and critical and those sorts of things so yeah there's an argument though isn't there that I mean some of the companies I don't think they do this much anymore but when they were really spending a lot of time and effort on these things deeply would start to look at the kind of skills uh especially when they were looking at you know doing those tests and things like that and promotion qualities that you needed they would start to assess those and say, are they a bit biased? I suppose it's sort of like an unconscious bias thing, you know, is assertive and maybe start questioning, is that a good thing necessarily? Why is it a good thing? Do you have to have it? Who says you have to have it? You know, I think that there you can still question quite a lot of the attributes that men and women have. And both are needed. And some women are more, uh, some women do display, are more assertive like that. But I think your point, what you were displaying is also that women are brought up as girls to please people and not be too disruptive and critical. And, and I think that's still there. Yeah. I feel like I experienced that when I first started as a graduate um, in an investment management company and I was the only girl within the group that I started with. And I felt like I was almost sort of pigeonholed into that role mm. um, early on, as you say, in an unconscious way, probably. Yeah, no, that's a, um, that's the kind of some work was done by a writer called Sylvia Garadi on culture and symbolism and things. And she was explaining that when women go into a very kind of masculine environment, a male dominated environment, rather, they're kind of like usurping uh, a symbolic order of gender and they have to be quite quiet and apologize and get on, you know, and sort of like head down, which I think is, I mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you don't want to kind of like, show off and be too kind of like look at me I'm like, <laughs> yeah so that's the argument for having more women so that you can actually just influence the way things are done in a natural way definitely and from a graduate perspective you know thinking about getting women across the board you know across the the range of um senioritys within companies within the investment management industry the number of applicants that are female even right at the very start is only around 10 percent you're joking. I know. Because do you know I started off in investment management? Oh, really? Yeah. I went as a graduate to Robert Fleming, as it then was. It was bought by uh, Chase Manhattan. But um, we went and there were, we went on and they were called accepting houses in those days. And there was an accepting house course for a week. There were 11 merchant banks, investment banks, all UK, because we hadn't had Big Bang then. And... Uh, there were a hundred of us and there were 16 women and they called it the year of the woman. Wow. That was in 1981. I don't know if things have moved on very much since then, sadly. Well, I'm a bit disappointed to hear 10% is poor. That's that's application. So I don't know how many women get uh, accepted into the roles, but uh, there is actually a charity that my friend runs, which is aiming to try to improve that statistic by going into schools and universities and talking to women about... Um, you know, what the role entails, how interesting it is, exciting it is, because people are ruling themselves out of what is a fantastic career 
before they've even not knowing had a go. Yeah, um, because they watch The Wolf of Wall Street and think that's what it's like. Yes, there's not much exposure of it, is there? In exactly. the in our kind of common culture. Yeah, that's that, that hasn't changed. And if the characteristics of an w- organisation, perhaps an investment management firm, are so kind of male dominated, as in inverted commas, you know thinking of the assertiveness, forthrightness, etc. Yeah. Do you think women are further hamstrings when they have children because that maternal instinct's coming out and actually that nurturing side of you is maybe developed, which perhaps hadn't even been there before. Yeah. And then you're going back into this world where you're trying to progress in, in seniority and there's just isn't the the culture, I guess, to, to help no. support you. Well, I think what happens is that, you know, you change so much, but you go back into a culture that hasn't changed at all. And you suddenly think, oh, I mean, things were so bad in my day that I went back to the office in the in the in the in the newspaper and people were still smoking and everything. You know, I'd been pregnant and I just had to go to the HR say, could people stop smoking around me, please? Yeah. And, and it was it, it was like, <laughs> And I mean, things have to have come on since then, I guess. But yeah, it still does feel like a very male-dominated world in terms of the characteristics that are valued. And I, I definitely, yeah. Well, it's shown through what Alzi just said in terms of assertiveness being something that's valued so highly, and that being the weakness that's been identified. I'd be interested to know whether a man, you know, gets, I don't know nurturing as one of the topics that he has to work on um probably not <laughs> i doubt it no i absolutely doubt so it. the characteristics it. That are be, that are, no the characteristics of being a leader are those characteristics associated with being a man which i find quite difficult to stomach yeah i mean i wrote something quite recently about you know this whole concept of this is where the kind of look you have to look and see how women are valued generally in their so two things. One, I I don't think women are valued as highly as men in society yet at all. And that goes on into, into the workplace. So that, you know, we'll follow on from that, that the characteristics that men might display are going to be more highly valued. Uh, the only company that I actually ever kind of like did some research and work with was a company where which was started by a female founder. And she had four children. And it's it's quite successful. I talk about it in the book. It's called Sistock. It's changed its name now. but And she just said that she chose her staff on their values coming in from the start rather than trying to kind of like then say to people, oh, go on this course and do that. And she said if they didn't value family and children, I didn't care how clever they were. She said because on the whole, you get to a level of intelligence, you can turn your hand to most things. But that was... And I've always said, I don't know why organisations don't actually do this a bit more, because you can only change your culture kind of quite slowly, is that you choose people for their values coming in. And I think that would make quite a big difference. That's quite interesting, because I think also from a male side, I don't think family perhaps is discussed as much as it is in the female sense. So, you know, I'll come in and if, if there are other women who have children, you might be more open in mm. that your child's been up all night or you're having childcare issues, etc. You wouldn't perhaps discuss that with a man in the same way. 
Um, but it's actually, shame. and it's a shame because men are going through those same challenges as well. They are. Men have had to drop their child off at nursery and they've been screaming and it's all horrible yeah. or they've been up all night, etc. Yeah. And, and it's a shame that men aren't. Do they not talk about discussing, it? I don't think they discuss it as much as no. perhaps a female would. And, and we interviewed uh, Nick Krasner, who was on our podcast uh, in January, and he said this exact point. He said, I am, um, I don't, in the male world, we don't talk about those types of childcare issues or the fact that my toddler had a massive tantrum this morning in the same way that women do. They should. Yeah. I'm so lucky, actually. My boss has four children and is really open and really supportive about, you know, me going on maternity leave and coming back, all those sorts of things. But also we discuss it all the time. So you get you also get lucky, don't you, with who you work with closely. Yeah, that's so great. And actually, you can see why, Elsie, um, that if you get lucky, you don't want to move no. jobs. And that's why that's always said to organisations that, you know, you can actually it's very good for an organiser. You won't lose women if they're happy with you because it's too much of a risk to go off somewhere else. It's the same with maternity support during maternity leave, isn't it? And companies paying well for maternity leave. Um, it becomes a big attraction when you're looking to acquire and keep talent, you know, giving people really good support. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I would say, I think also, yes, the, the kind of maternity leave conditions are, are important, but I think that kind of support throughout and, and, and coming back that's important. And it's not good enough just to say, oh, there's a senior woman who's been through the same thing. Talk to her. It should, you know, because what we want to do, and I, I, I hope that the pandemic's done this a bit, is normalise the fact that it's quite hard to separate out home and work. We realise that you know and sometimes sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good but pretending that the other side of life isn't impacting your day when you've been up all night is is absurd yeah I think you're right the pandemic gave everyone an insight into everyone's personal lives in a way that we'd never had before um, which I think has certainly Mm. helped I think from a flexibility perspective it's also helped um, you know proving that people can work from home yeah has has helped give people more more opportunity to be in or out of the office well whatever's best for them yeah it's interesting isn't it because consultants like myself have been arguing for being able to work from home for parents for years and there's always been this kind of oh they they won't be visible they might mess around we need something the other and then suddenly now it's hey look how easy it is you know Yeah, um, all these companies being kicked into the 21st century. Yeah, and the workers have stepped up and proved that it can be done. It is, but I think it's I think it's important to acknowledge that an awful lot of women left the workforce during the pandemic. Yes, because it was just too much to homeschool children and keep a job. Absolutely, and as so often happens, that childcare element fell to the to the woman when push came to shove. Yeah. And something we've talked about before is the extortionate childcare costs in the UK. I think we're now the most expensive in the whole of the Western world. Um, And, you know, you talked earlier about seeing paying for a nanny as an investment in your career. And we want to support more people to think about it like that and look at it like that. Um, Rather than thinking short term, you know, you might be just breaking even for a few years, but actually long term. Yeah, it's worth it. It can be worth it. I think I, I think I've said 
I might have said this to Joy before, but I think it's also very important that women don't feel that they're carrying the burden of childcare costs themselves. It's a joint thing. There are two of you there, usually. It should be done on can we, what can we afford? Because otherwise it feels like it's your responsibility and you feel guilty if you're not bringing more money in, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I mean, if you're in a highly paid job, fantastic. But an awful lot of women will just look at the sums and think, is it worth it? I mean, they've got to, you know, it's a joint decision, but it shouldn't be th- shouldn't be seen as, will I have enough, you know, will I break even sort of thing? It's like, let's pool it. Yeah. I'd be interested to know, Sarah, how you working through uh, having children has impacted, you've got a son and a daughter, don't you? Yeah. How do you think it's impacted their attitude to work and women and that sort of thing? How is that, you know, seeing them as grown-ups now? I I think it's been I think it's been really important mm. actually. I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? I mean, there obviously have been times when I have been probably more absent than I should have been, and that's just you know, um some sports days and things like that. But I try to be around more at key times because it's you know, it's all very well talking about the first sort of 5 years. Uh I personally, for me, think just as important, if not more important, are kind of like early teens when, you know, mm. you, you can't, leave, there isn't a, you know, you won't get a nanny at that time, at that, in that stage. Somebody needs to kind of like have a bit of a measure of what's going on. But I think particularly for mothers of daughters, it's, it's really, I mean, I know myself that I'm my sister who's a pediatrician. I think we probably saw our mum at home having had to give up work when she got married, uh, actually even when she got engaged, I think, and and thinking, oh, we don't want to be like that. And it sounds an awful thing to say. You might find that there's a, a reverse and people look at working mums say, I don't want to be like my mum, never there. But I think what I did say I thought was very important to my daughter is that always have your own money. Mm. I, I mean, you might have the best marriage in, in the world, but I mean, I mean, I'm divorced. And if I hadn't had my work, I'd be an awful lot poorer than I am now. Yeah. I, I'd probably say so would he. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I it just gave me my independence. I would absolutely be saying that to my daughters as well. Just, you know, that sense of knowing that you've got your own money should everything fall down around you you know you don't yeah, and you can look, and after, you can look yourself. after yourself and you, you don't know what's to come in your future one hopes that you you're happily married forever and all, all these sort of things but anything could happen and just having you know an income or at least your foot in the door um into something that is your world that's slightly independent of, of others is just a you know something sensible to do it is. It's even an argument, I suppose, one could say, for actually getting a training. Yeah. Even if you drop out for a bit, it's something that people are now are much more, I know accountancy firms are starting to kind of bring back women who've left the workforce for a while. Um, but just you don't want to be in a situation where you're having to stay when things are really bad or whatever. I just think that it's important that girls learn that they can look after themselves my my mum definitely um was a big 
a proponent of saying, you know, get a profession, even, you know, once you've got that under your belt, it's actually a real safety net. It is. It is. It's like, I mean, it can't be taken away from you. Yeah. But better than that, you know, you can actually thrive off the back of it and, you know, you can be paid to go on maternity leave and you can have lots of, you know, there's so many benefits that come from it as well. But yes, in a worst case scenario, it's also there as a bit of a safety net, um, which which is helpful. Yeah. And do you think Kagi and Freddie are, are, do you think that they're proud of you? Do you think that they are um, ambitious because they've seen you work? Oh, I didn't know you'd have to ask them, Joy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I can do. <laughs> I think, I think, I think, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I think, that, you know, looking back, they might feel quite grateful that I did have my work, particularly when, you know, getting divorced, um, because I was able to keep a standard of living for them that otherwise they wouldn't have had. But I think also... I think they're interested in what I do and I hope it's influenced. I think it's quite important to influence the boys, you know, the young men. It's really because yeah, I agree. it's not that they have to see women as kind of out there breaking balls and all the rest of it. It's not that. It's just that they have a bit more of an understanding of what life can be like for women and their own expectations change. I think, I think women can, mothers can teach their sons a lot that perhaps we don't we think might just be normal but they'll be picking up very opposite things outside your home I think that's a really good point just I want to say something about that actually and I know it's a long time ago but I remember when my son Freddie was about six and we were in the car and he said mum I'm really glad I'm a boy and I said yeah well really? Why do you say that, darling? Well, boys can do everything and girls can't. And I, and that was with me working and my sister, a fairly high-powered paediatrician, and they were the two women that he probably saw the most. But he'd already picked up from playing football at weekends. Seeing the news, seeing, yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I can see why he thinks that. I, I feel that in some respects. But why do you think he felt that? Because that's what he saw. So he felt that in terms of... That's what the messages, that's what the messages were. Like, well, for him, his world was like, girls don't, you know, girls don't play football. Yeah. Uh, I, I, he must have just seen more visible men on telly. I, I don't know. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's if you look at something like football, for example, it, yes, both can perhaps play football but yeah it's men that are paid the big salaries who are on the front page of the newspaper well you just have to go to a public park at a weekend and you'll see team sports playing and you won't see girls team sports being played mm. girls will be at ballet mm. I think you're right I think that message is given to children from such an early age even subconsciously um so mm. by the time you're even thinking about entering the workplace a lot of I think a lot of girls are on the back foot already thinking that they're you know, less important, less good, less clever, less whatever it happens to be, which is just such a negative way to start. Yeah. Less likely to work. Yeah. Less. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was reading, I was even reading a Peppa Pig book um, yesterday uh, to my toddler and it was, it was like, it was about mummy. It was mummy pig, um, you know, is, looks after Peppa and George. Mummy pig does this. Mummy pig takes the the toys to the, 
football. And then at, literally on the last page, it was like, Mummy Pig also sometimes works on her computer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've got that priority to then, haven't we? Yeah. And then, yeah. And I was like, right, okay, good. As an afterthought, yeah. Mummy Pig occasionally yeah. works. Get rid of that yeah. book. I know, it's awful. Yeah. Sarah, it's been so interesting hearing your perspective um, and also hearing about how things have changed over time. I'd love to hear from you as we ask all of our guests to give us what your biggest high and your biggest low of being a mother who works is. Um Obviously, it's a long period to sum up in a couple of moments. But uh, if you've got any any insights on your biggest high and biggest low, we'd love to hear them. Um, oh, biggest high. Well, I was all, all my my kids were already quite old then. Was probably bringing out my book. But before that, I think doing a PhD when they were quite small, although it's not. I mean, I didn't get paid. I mean, I got a, a scholarship to do it. So I got money coming in, which I used to pay for childcare. But doing that in with no extra time was probably my biggest high. Amazing and achievement. My my brain literally reached its absolute capacity. And it's never gone back there. Um, my biggest low, uh, I suppose if you add it up, some of the things missed. I'd only have to look at it like that. I can't think of like, oh, there was one birthday that I missed or anything like that. But possibly uh, like I would press, particularly when I was studying, I would maybe not come, not go to the Isle of Wight for the whole of half term, send down the nanny with them, things like that. Uh, But Sarah, would you do it all again? I, I would. What I what I was quite strict about was trying to take some time in the summer. You can't always work that as a consultant because you're you don't know when your projects are coming in. But I did try and make that a kind of a special pay. Yeah, no, I would definitely, I would definitely. I'm I'm not. A, I'd never have been a good stay-at-home mum. I know some are, but I wouldn't have been. A brilliant message to end on, Sarah. That everyone's different. You've got to find the thing that works well for you. Everyone's and, uh, different, and go for it. Exactly. If you want to get back to work, you can do it and go for it. You can. You absolutely can, and you must. Otherwise, you'll be unhappy, which is actually not very good for your husband or your children. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sarah. We've loved having you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Joy. Thanks, Alice. Bye.